Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Welcome everyone to City Beautiful Church. You know, there was, there was something that, that just kind of struck me this morning, and it was here too, uh, just as Kaylee's leading, and, and to brag on her, like, Kaylee is growing so much into a, a leader, a worship leader. Do you feel that? Which I love that. I love that. There's a difference. I don't really know how to lead worship. I can bang out three chords on a guitar and sing, and I hope that people are singing along if I'm ever in that position. Um, but it's been amazing to see her really leading, and, and I, I was reflecting on it this morning as she was uh, doing her thing up here, and, you know, part of my job is to kind of have my finger on the pulse of what's going on in the American church, uh, just, to, just to know what, what are we, what are, where are we, where are we moving towards, what's the Lord doing, and we're in this really beautiful moment in history where I think um, a lot of different paths are crossing within the church. We're not as compartmentalized as we used to be, because I think we don't necessarily have that luxury, Right. Um, it's very easy when you have the majority seat at the table to take for granted your tribe, you know? Well, we're the Lutherans, and you're the Baptists, and you're the first churches of whatevers, and, and all, you know. Um, and I think we're in, a, we're in a place in our society where we no longer have that luxury, and so we're starting to listen to each other a little bit more. And one of the major uh, points of growth that I'm really excited about seeing in the national conversation um, but even within our community is seeing uh, a charismatic element, which we would say is a, a deep, respect for the Holy Spirit as being present and living and active today, us engaging with the Holy Spirit, being empowered by him, uh, demonstrating the spiritual gifts. We see that kind of rising up. We also see it meeting this kind of ancient church tradition of liturgy, of contemplation. And there's a really beautiful conversation happening nationally at the crossroads. And I'm excited to see us as part of that. And in a, you know, a couple months, we're going to be talking about what I feel like has, the Lord has given for vision for our community in 2019. And the thing I keep coming back to is like, I just want more. I don't know about you. I just want more. I want more, like all of it. Like if it brings us closer to Jesus, like let's have it. Let's have more Holy Spirit. Let's have more prophecy. Let's have more healing. Let's have more liturgy. Let's learn how to pray together. Let's have more communion. Let's have more baptism. Like these are the things that we shouldn't be ashamed of because they make us seem odd by society's standards because these are the markers of what it means to live in the kingdom. So I just want to encourage all of you with that as we're continuing forward. And I think it actually really plays into what I'm going to be speaking about tonight. We're in this series called Crux. Uh, the word crux means a vital, basic, decisive, or pivotal point, uh, but in Latin it also means cross. And so what we're looking at is our faith being cross-shaped, that the, the Jesus on the cross is at the center of our faith, that everything that we believe and do points towards Jesus on the cross, and it radiates from there. And so each week we've been examining what are some of these foundational elements of the Christian faith that as we come back to them time and again, they reveal to us a new level of depth, and there's a new invitation to encounter the God that's revealed in Jesus. And tonight I'm going to be talking about the Holy Sacraments, which are basically sacred acts. Um, specifically in baptism and communion, uh, but how those help us on the path and how very important they are to Christianity. So I'm gonna pray uh, and we're gonna jump into this. Heavenly Father, we testify to the truth that you're here and that you are with us, that you are for us, you are not against us. Lord, we thank you for 
this season of revitalization in our community, that you're breathing life into, uh, into spaces that are dead or, or maybe have felt very stiff for a long time, and, and we're seeing things coming alive again. We're seeing things loosen up, and, and it just feels like we have permission to breathe a little bit more now as you're giving us some trajectory. And Lord, we thank you for that, and we ask for more. I pray that you would open all of our ears to be able to hear you speaking, that it would become as natural to us as breathing and eating is to, to sustain ourselves on your word. Uh, as you speak to each one of us in real time. And so, Lord, as we uh, continue tonight, I pray that you would keep each of us in that, uh, um, that posture of openness uh, to receive, to listen, that maybe it's through something that I'm going to say, but maybe it has nothing to do with what I'm saying, um, that you speak uh, to each of your dear ones here tonight. And that's okay. That's why we're here, Lord, to hear you, not to hear me. Uh, and so may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Um, so, you know, a brief part of my story, there's usually like three things that people know about me because I probably talk about them incessantly. One of them being that I'm from Northern Ireland. And, and another was that I grew up in the Anglican tradition. Um, so my father was ordained uh, in the Church of Ireland. We moved here uh, into the Episcopal Church, which is kind of the, uh, the Anglican expression in North America. Uh, and now he's at a little Anglican church in France. And so that was the way that I grew up. And if you're familiar with that, we always used to joke about it being diet Catholic. It's like Catholicism without like the Mary stuff, basically. Um, but a lot of the traditions were the same. The processes were the same. And, um, and we used liturgical prayer. Uh, sermons are generally a lot shorter. Um, you know, worship is maybe a bit more hymnal, although that changes from church to church. Um, but it's all about coming to the table. That's kind of the, the ultimate point in the Episcopal service. And um, so I grew up in that. And I didn't really have much of a choice. Obviously, you're the pastor's kid. Like, you have to go to church. And, and I had that revelation when I first went to college in St. Augustine that many of us have had where you wake up one Sunday morning and you realize that you are the king of, or queen of your own universe. And you don't have to go to church if you don't want to all of a sudden, right? And there's this tremendous sense of freedom. How many of you experienced that? Maybe it was like you moved out of your parents' house, your first year of college or whatever it might be. And there was this tremendous sense of freedom in that, um, just to be able to do what I wanted um, with my own life. And there was nobody there telling me to get up at a certain time and you're not allowed to wear jeans because God doesn't like denim, you know, or whatever it might be. And... Um, and that was, that was fine for a while. It was about a, you know, about a year and a half, and it got through about halfway through my sophomore year, and I started to feel pruny. Not like, you know, we use, we use the word pruning in a good sense in Christianity, like, oh, I'm being pruned. I mean, like, wrinkled up, like, dried up, like I was like a prune spiritually. And it was something that, it like snuck up on me. I didn't realize it for a long time because it's the novelty of living on your own and all these new experiences that come with young adulthood. But I re began to realize how much I was missing something. And if I was going to be refilled, if I was going to get back on track, it was something that I had to come to by my own determination. There wasn't gonna be my parents there to force me to do that. Although, if you know my mother, you know that she was calling me every week, seeing, did you go to church this week? And no, mom, I had homework or whatever. You know, we make up stuff. And um, so I bounced around a few churches in St. Augustine, and it was just, nothing felt substantial. Uh, it all, it, a lot of churches, they, they were fine. Uh, there was people that were really active, and I didn't, it just didn't really resonate with me until I actually ended up in this tiny little Episcopal church 
uh, called St. Cyprian's. Um, it was about 60 people. You know, it's not too much smaller than our own church. Um, and I was immediately hooked. Um, and there was a lot of little kids, and there was a lot of old people. It's actually a very uh, ethnically diverse uh, community, which was really neat. And I was like the only college-age person. Um, and I, I just immediately felt home when I stepped into this environment. And I think what I realized upon reflection later on was that so much of what I think I wouldn't say was forced upon me when I was young, but was kind of mandated in me and was woven into my story, um, I was now choosing into. And it was almost like God was handing me back my own tradition and my language uh, and the things that I was familiar with, but I was holding them in this dramatically new way that they were giving me life. And one of the most profound things that I appreciated in that season of coming back to my own tradition that really catapulted me then to be able to step into charismatic church was uh, the sacrament of Holy Communion. Sometimes it's called the Eucharist, sometimes it's called the Lord's Table. And like I said, that was always, that's the place that we're working towards. Even the sermon is like the warm-up to the main event, that communion was the main thing. And one of the things that I realized as I began to reclaim my own faith journey was that it was communion every week, coming to the table every week, was actually forming me to be more Christ-like. You know, a lot of times it's the habits in our lives that we don't realize when we do them day after day or week after week or whatever it might be in a million small little ways. They don't seem significant in the moment, but we look back over a season in our lives and see how transformative they really were. And so I began to realize how important the sacraments were to me because they were the things that were forming me. Uh, and so that's really what I want to kind of I hope to convey to you tonight, when we're talking about baptism and Holy Communion, to kind of maybe for some of you to rekindle um, a passion uh, and an understanding of, of these uh, sacred elements within the Christian tradition, but maybe for some of you to actually kindle a new love for something that perhaps has never been explained to you or you've never really encountered. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about what the sacraments are and what they do for us. I'm going to talk a little bit about baptism, and I'm going to talk a little bit uh, about the Eucharist, and then we're going to come to the table together. So as I was kind of thinking, what, what's, the, what's the main dynamic point that we would want to say about sacraments, it's this. The sacraments remind us of the central truth of our faith, that it's all a gift. This is, this is what all the sacraments, so for us as Protestants, we have two in Catholicism and other traditions, there are seven sacraments, but all of them are this reorientation back to the central truth of Christianity, that everything is a gift. Or maybe we say everything is grace. The word grace means gift. It's something that we have received. And why is this so important? I think it, we come here to be reminded of what's actually true. And we talked about this even a couple of weeks ago when I was describing faith. I was saying faith is less us, you know, intellectually affirming the following statements. Hey, do you believe this thing? Yes. Do you believe this thing? Okay, we're good. Faith is actually us choosing to participate in God's story, especially 
when we don't have all the facts, when we don't know what's going on. And a lot of us have actually been trained to understand that faith is something that we muster up within ourselves. If we work hard enough in it and we memorize all the right things, then we've got faith. And if we question any of it, then all of a sudden we've lost our faith or we have a crisis. But rather seeing that faith is about us choosing to show up time and again and to participate, whether we understand things or not. And the sacraments actually help us in that element of participation, that it's this action that we're taking part in that's leading us not away from a faith that's based in belief, but a faith that's fuller, that has an element of practice to it, that we have a practice-based faith. And I think this is the profound truth of this reorientation to the giftedness of the whole thing, is that we need to come back to that story. Because if we don't, we believe that the actions of doing church are just more tasks to earn something. I think this is why some of us feel burned out about going to church. We believe that church is something that costs us. And so this is why we don't go to church, because we need to take some time to get refueled, which is a tragedy because this should be the place that we're refueled. This should be the place that we're coming to have new life breathed into us. But somewhere along the way, whether it's within our own mentality or it's within the church environment itself, we've believed that it's another task to accomplish. It's another thing that's going to take from us, and we have to protect ourselves from that thing. And so we don't essentially believe that the central truth of our faith is that this is a gift and it's all grace, but we believe that it's something that we have to earn. You know, and I do a lot of work around personality theory, and I was actually uh, listening to someone yesterday, and they said something so profound. They said, your personality is the story that you have come to believe that is in opposition to the story of grace. I'll say it again. Your personality, the way you think, act, feel, perceive the world, choose to be in the world, is the story that you tell yourself that runs in direct opposition to the story of grace. Now, what does that sound like? That sounds like you have to earn it. If you want love, you have to be lovable. If you want love, you have to work really hard and, 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 and earn it. If you want to be safe, you've got to fight for your place at the table. If you want to protect yourself, you need to pull away and you need to hide. All of our little personality quirks are these stories that we're telling ourselves about what it means to be loved, to be safe, to have belonging. And those stories run contrary to the story of grace. But unfortunately, a lot of times we bring those stories in with us and we project them onto God. That that's what God wants. In order for God to love us, we have to earn it. We have to fight for it. We have to behave ourselves. We have to be good boys. We have to be good girls. And then when we come to something like the Holy Communion, we bring that same attitude that it's something we're checking off the box. We're earning it. We're singing the songs. We're doing the prayers. We're reading the Bible, whatever it might be, in order to earn something that's already been freely given to us. But when we understand, when we shift our lens of how we perceive church and especially how we perceive the sacraments, we realize that the sacraments are the invitation to come back to grace. And so why do we use sacraments? Why don't we just sit here and talk about it all the time? Although sometimes it probably feels like that's what I do is I just sit and talk to you all the time. But I think this is it. It's kind of, this is why the sacraments are so important. God created us as creatures of symbol. 
God has woven something into your DNA as a human being where you seek meaning where there is none inherently. And this is what separates you from all the rest of the animal kingdom, is that as a, as a human being, you're going around looking and perceiving symbols. You're looking for the thing behind the thing. You see a sunset, and it's not just, you know, light reflecting, 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 reflect, refracting? Fracking. It's not fracking. <laughs> Fraking. Light refraking. <laughs> Kevin, what am I trying to say? What does it do? Refracting. refracting. Thank you. Light refracting off of water pellets in the air, and that's what makes a sunset. Like, there's something more there for us as human beings, but then we call that thing beauty. And God has actually crafted us in this way to be creatures of symbol, that descriptions of things are not enough for us. Taking things, heaven forbid, literally or on the surface is not enough. We crave meaning. We crave depth. We crave something being more than what it is on first appearance. And so the sacraments are symbols that turn the mundane moments of life into sacred ones. This is how I describe the whole Torah. You know, sometimes we give the Old Testament a really bad rap and we look at the laws that, that God gave Moses for the Israelites and we're like, oh, look at all these, they had to jump through all these hoops. But I think there's an actual kinder lens to use there is that God was giving uh, an abused people a series of symbols and sacred acts to rehabilitate them, to remind them that God is present. Because in and of itself, you know, cotton-touching nylon is not, like, the worst thing that you can do. How many of you are, are disobeying the Torah right now, you sinners? You need to go home and separate out your, your clothes or whatever it might be. Or, or the, you know, the eating habits, how you prepare a meal. Like, these things in and of themselves, you know, there's some practical elements to it. But by and large, they don't really seem like, quote-unquote, they matter. But what was really happening is God is saying, as an abused people, you don't know who I am and you don't know who you are. And so when you live the kind of life that I'm calling you to live, when I provide some order, you're going to take something normal like putting clothes on in the morning. You're going to take something normal like a, just making a meal. And because I'm, you're doing it in the way that I asked you to do it, you're going to recognize that I'm present with you. And it dramatically shifts the normal mundane everydayness of this. So many of you know my friend Joel, uh, who works in coffee out in Tampa. He's come and led worship here before. He told me this story several years ago, kind of right when the whole craft coffee thing was really taking off. He was working at this shop, and they had kind of two clientele. They had, uh, you know, people that really loved coffee and sitting down and going, oh, this is like stone fruit and white grape, and this one tastes like cardboard or whatever, you know. And then they had, like, the nine-to-fivers rush in, grab the cup of coffee, and leave, okay? So they, he's kind of working with both of these. And they provided for both. They had drip coffee, and they had lovely pour-over coffees. And he said so often the, the nine-to-fivers coming in, rushing in, grabbing the cup, and leaving, they would always kind of ask him questions about these other techniques of making coffee. They said, oh, it just seems so, you know, inconvenient, and it takes forever. I just want my cup of coffee, and I want to go on. And he said, you know, I used to think that way, too. And then I started getting into these other ways of making coffee beyond just the simple press the button on the machine and the thing happens. And he uses uh, a Chemex pour over, which, you know, is kind of a process. And he said, you know, every morning now I wake up and I grind the beans and I measure everything out just so and I heat my water to exactly the right temperature and, and I kind of pour it slowly over the beans and in this kind of, you know, cyclical ritualistic motion. And what I find is that it slows me down in the morning, and it 
it, I, it causes me to focus on something and to pause before I start the rest of my day. He said, that 10 minutes of me making my coffee in the morning has now become my favorite part of the day. And when he started to teach his clientele that, all of their pour-over techniques started flying off the shelves. Because one of the tragedies of our society over the past 50 years is we believe, oh, we're all just too busy, and so the more convenient and disposable we can make everything in our lives, then we're gonna, it's going to be better. And so everything needs to be faster, quicker, cheaper, more disposable. And then we all realize, like, oh, my life is lacking meaning. There's no real ritual to it. Everything's so automatic. You get up, you shower, you throw on your clothes, you brush your teeth, you go to work, you do the thing, you come home, you make dinner. You know, it's so um, absent-minded. And I think that reorientation to to the sacredness, turning the mundane into the sacred is, is, a, is a really scene in that story of how Joel was teaching people about how we can perceive coffee. And that's what the sacraments do for us is it's this sacred holy moment. It's a sacred holy act that we participate in to recognize the presence of God. But the more that we do it and the more that we participate, we realize, oh, actually the whole thing is holy. Actually, it's all sacred. And whatever happens here when we come to the table, when we experience baptism, whatever it might be, it begins to transform us in a way that we actually see God is present with us everywhere else. Because beauty in symbol takes us places in a way that just talking about it, just describing it can't. That when we open ourselves to participate in beauty, we find the meaning that we're looking for, and that's the thing that transforms us. I think this is what's so beautiful about that, that we're invited to live in a space between memory and magic. It's called mystery. Get that up on the... There you go. I was proud of this one, you know. You know, us pastors in our little, like, get everything to rhyme. We're invited to live in a space between memory and magic. Uh, that's called mystery. And I think churches oftentimes end up in one of these two categories. Maybe a lot of you, you grew up with this idea, especially, again, uh, of the table, that we're doing it in remembrance of what Jesus did on the cross. So Jesus did this thing like 2,000 years ago, and we just remember it in the same way that we would kind of open up photo albums at our grandparents' house and go, oh, hey, you remember that one summer we went to the Grand Canyon? And that's how we do it. It's just, we're just remembering something. But there's this other extreme where it's magic, and you don't find this as much anymore, but I think it's still alive in some uh, versions of Christianity. Several years ago, uh, my dad had a couple um, intern pastors. They were studying at seminary to become priests, and they were what we would call Anglo-Catholic, which means they love all the smells and the bells. They love of high church and hymns and stained glass and the these and the thous and you know all they love all of that and my dad was constantly rolling his eyes at these guys because that's really not his flavor and so I was I was uh, I was at their their place for a couple weeks and dad invited these guys over to meet me and we're having dinner you know at this point um, I'm working at a church in Nashville and and dad just looks over at me and very cheekily he says, why don't you tell these guys how you do communion at your church? And I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. Like, so somebody will come up and they'll just share a little bit of what the Lord's been saying to them recently and then we'll have, you know, two people come up and they'll hold uh, the, the gluten-free bread and the juice and people come forward and they'll, you know, give their offerings and they'll take it. And these guys are like recoiling. They're like, you mean you don't have a priest that comes and blesses it? It's not communion. Like you're letting like the plebeians just touch it? 
with their hands? Like, what is this? And so my dad is thinking this is absolutely hilarious, but um, th- there's this uh, there's this very obscure theological concept called transubstantiation, which means when a, ho- when a priest, does someone woo transubstantiation? Amazing. I love you guys. Uh, but essentially what it means is when a priest does the magic words and he waves his hands over the stuff, it ter- literally turns into the body and blood of Jesus. And then the question is, when? Is it right now it's the body and blood of Jesus, or is it like when it enters my mouth and somewhere in my esophagus it turns into flesh and blood? Like, when does that happen? And, and this was kind of like where these guys were coming from. And, the, and I, I affirm in that like this high sense of reverence and awe. And I, I think as Protestants, we probably need more of that, if anything. Um, but I was talking to my dad's associate about this, this story. He's this crazy Scotsman named Vince McLaughlin, and he said, you know, the problem is that it's, it's, it's still into this line of thinking of, I need to know how this works. And, and you got to say the words right, and you got to do the thing properly, else it doesn't work. And he said, you know, your father and I, were, we, we come from a different tradition, the, the, the tradition of mystery, which says, I don't need to know exactly how it works. I'm just here to tell you that it does. That when I come to the table in faith, Something happens to me. Something happens within me. And that's why I'm saying we're invited to live in that place of mystery that kind of, it's not just about remembering a thing that happened long ago, but it's also not some sort of a magic trick that we have to get it all right because, again, that's still self-righteousness. That's us still thinking that we need to earn it. But living in the place of mystery enables us to receive a gift. And so Jesus commanded us uh, to two sacraments. This is why in Protestantism we affirm two, um, like I said, Catholicism has seven, and you can kind of look that up on your own. So Jesus directly in Scripture commands us to two sacraments, baptism and communion. And so uh, baptism, for example, Matthew 28, is Jesus is commissioning his disciples to go out. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then the second being Holy Communion, also called the Lord's Table, also called the Eucharist. And this is actually some, this is Paul writing to one of his churches. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so let's look at baptism. There are two main, uh, we'll say, denominations of Islam. There's about three main strands of of Judaism, and there are 41,000 denominations of Christianity. Does anybody want to take a wild guess what's kind of like reason number one that we split? Baptism, thank you. It's the thing we're talking about. If it was something else, that would be a weird little aside. But no, it is <laughs> baptism. And, it, and it's, it's so funny, like even preparing to talk about it because it, it's just like our dukes come up and we're like, infant baptism, no adult baptism, full immersion, no, 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 sprinkle, like rebaptism, that's a heresy and all this, you know. Um, I actually, to confess to all of you, I was infant baptized. I know. <laughs> Garrett this morning just yelled out, heresy! And we agreed that we were going to go over to Lake Ivanhoe after this and he would take care of business. 
but it's, it's, it's so, again, this is us not believing that all things are a gift, that all things are grace, and that we have to parse through the particulars, and then we have to fight to defend our correct way of viewing these things. And so I don't want to get into the weeds too much with all of the little disagreements. I want to get to the fundamental truth. I think baptism is a symbol that we've been welcomed into the family of God and that we've been given new life. Baptism is a symbol that we've been welcomed in to the family of God. And it finds its roots in Judaism. Again, another faith that has a a rich tradition of ritual and symbol. And and the main one that I want to point to, although they they did baptism at the time of Jesus, I'll talk talk about in a moment, um, was circumcision. Um, So how many of you in here? No, just kidding. (laughs) Don't need to know. Don't need to know that. So on the, on the eighth day, um, a little Jewish boy was circumcised, and it was this mark, this symbol, that he is part of God's family, okay? Um, and the, the beauty of that symbol is it was not something that this little boy asked for. It was something that he received. He wasn't quizzed. He didn't have to get, all, you know, get it all right on the test. He didn't have to behave himself. He's eight days old. His circumcision, this mark of being part of the family of God, was something that he was received. And then later on in his life, when he approaches about the age of 13, uh, he takes on the responsibility himself for living into what was initially gifted to him when he was born. And that's what it means to, to follow the law. Like, he will, he will always be a Jew, but taking on the responsibility for his own faith is saying, are you going to be a good Jew or a bad Jew? And I actually would say that, for me, that's the defense for infant baptism. Um, And the second uh, image was baptism within the Jewish tradition, which was uh, about the washing away of sins and the symbol of repentance. And that was kind of very in vogue in the time of Jesus. We see John the Baptist, but all sorts of people were baptizing people all over the place. And so Christianity kind of married these symbols together as this is what it looks like, not just for Jews, but now for all of us goyim uh, to be welcomed into the family of God. And so for about the first 100 years of the church, it was primarily adult baptism. Um, but even in that, there's things that we would find very odd today. You know, the, the head of a household would come to know Christ, and his entire household, his wife, wives, kids, slaves, everybody would be baptized, and they'd be brought into the family. And about the middle of the second or third century, middle of the second century, um, we started to see more infant baptism, which was babies being born into Christian families and being marked in that same way um, as circumcision. And there was always kind of three key elements that were talked about with baptism. Number one was the forgiveness of sins, water being the symbol of cleansing. Number two was being baptized into the name of Christ, which was being welcomed into God's family. And number three was the receiving of the Holy Spirit. Again, if we want to like parse through like why we create 41,000 denominations, that's the one where like some of us charismatics are like, no, the baptism of the Holy Spirit's like a different thing, and you got to wait 30 days, and then you get this thing. No. At your baptism, you receive the Holy Spirit. But all of this language was about belonging, and it was about moving from death to life. And that's why um, in immersion baptism, it's the symbol of going down under the water like you're being buried under the ground, and then you're being lifted up out of the water as you're being lifted into new life. You've been resurrected. But the main thing that I want us to recognize, again, if it's more about receiving than performing, is that you have been chosen in to a relationship. You were chosen into it. That's what your baptism means. 
And the question on the other side of your baptism becomes then, how do you want to steward that? One of my favorite analogies that I've used when I'm, I'm kind of walking people through the process of, of you know, when they want to get baptized is actually talk about it through the lens of marriage. Okay, so you can imagine, let's say you've been married for 10 years um, and, you know, you come up to your spouse, you say, honey, I love you so much. In fact, I, I love you more than the day that we got married. And boy, when I look back on that day, I did not know what I was doing at all. Like it was, I was foolish. Like I didn't know who you were. I didn't know who I was half the time. But, you know, it's been 10 years. I feel like I have so much more information. I feel like I've really gotten my head around the idea of marriage. And so I want to ask you, will you marry me? And your spouse would look and go, you're a crazy person. What, what about the previous 10 years? All of a sudden, they don't matter because you have more information than you did like when you were 25 or whatever? Like, come on. They'd look at you like you're a psycho. But a lot of times, that's how we treat our baptism because we think it's about us earning it. It's, the, it's about us having information or pr- putting on a performance in order to earn something from God. And so a lot of times you say, well, I was baptized, but I didn't really understand it. And you know, now I'm in a better place and I just, I really understand what baptism means now. And, and I, I know more about God. I know more about, you know, about myself. And so I'm ready to get baptized, which is to say, I really, at the end of the day, still do believe it's about me. And, I, and I'm not saying this to, like, keep condemnation to any of you that, that have been rebaptized. I just want us to all get on the same page and realize how important this is. Because our attitude by which we hold these things says a lot about what we believe about God. And sometimes we believe, like, no, no, now I really have got it together. Now I've read enough books and I've listened to enough podcasts. I'm, I'm, really, I'm ready to make the commitment. And God's like, we're there. We're already there. We're already in. Now, kind of continuing on with that analogy with marriage, I think to come to your, your beloved and to say, I love you more than the day that we've met, and, and, and these past 10 years have been, you know, there's been ups and downs, but I feel like we're closer than ever, and I actually want to reaffirm my, my vows to you. I want to recommit to you again. That is a beautiful symbol, and I highly encourage that. And so for me, I don't, I don't re-baptize people. I don't believe that's a thing. And I believe we actually do violence upon ourselves when we rebaptize because we're reinforcing, yes, it's about you. It's about what you can do. It's about how much you know. But I'm very happy to reaffirm people in their vows. I think we should always be recommitting ourselves to the Lord and reflecting back on what it is that we said yes to precisely at the moment when we did not know what we were doing. Because let's be honest, that's what marriage is. I'm choosing to say yes to you when I don't know what I'm doing and you don't either, and I don't know who I am, and I don't know who you are, but I'm willing to say yes now to spend the rest of my life figuring it out. And so baptism is the initiation. You're now part of the family, and then the invitation on the other side of that is how do you want to live into that? How do you want to steward the fact that you already belong and that you've already received grace? There's this beautiful verse in 1 Peter 2 um, that was actually probably something of a baptismal hymn um, that they would speak uh, in baptism initiation in the first couple centuries. And it says, once we were no people, but now we're God's people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have. And I love that. It speaks, we, were, we had no identity, we had no place, we had no home but now we do. We were violent against one another, 
We were violent against ourselves. We were cruel and malicious. But then we received mercy, and we've been welcomed into a new way of being human beings. And we need those regular reminders. And so if you look underneath your chairs, you'll find there's a little seashell. Um, from the earliest moments in the church, this was a symbol to Christians of their baptism, that a lot of times the priest would scoop the water up and kind of pour it over an infant's head using a shell. And so we're just going to take a moment to meditate um, on this idea of baptism. And so if you've been baptized, this is the question that I want you to meditate on. How have I lived into the gifts that I received in baptism? The forgiveness of sins, being welcomed into the family of God, um, and receiving the Holy Spirit. And if you haven't, can we go ahead and get that up there? The question? Um, and if you haven't been baptized, um, to, to consider that, is, there, is the Lord perhaps offering you invitation uh, to step in and to receive? So I'm going to pray, and I just want you to hold that shell in your hand uh, and just do some dialogue with the Father. Um, so Lord, we thank you that you have created us uh, to be symbolic people. Um, you, you've wired us to search for meaning that goes beyond the surface. Um, and you've given us this beautiful symbol of baptism. So, Lord, would you speak to each one of us right now about our own baptism story, recall to mind what, what that was like, what the invitation was like, the gifts that we've received on the other side of that. Speak to us now about how we've lived into that baptism. And Lord, if we haven't stepped into that yet, um, may we just sit quietly before you and ask you if, if now is the time for us to say yes. So baptism is a one-time sacred act, a sacrament that marks us as part of God's family and that our sins have been forgiven. But God also knows us and he knows that we need regular reminders of the gift that we've received. That we need to be reminded of the story of grace that stands in opposition to the story that we have to earn it or we have to fight for it or we have to run and hide. And so I think that then gives us permission to come to the Lord's table. That I think communion is the symbol that we've received a place at God's table. If baptism is us getting in the front door, then communion is us being able to come to the table. You know, sharing a meal is an intimate activity, and this, you see this all through Scripture. This is why we're commanded to share meals together, because it's over a meal that we're less enemies and we're more sharing with one another, because let's be honest, eating together is a vulnerable act. How many of you, you hate noises when people eat? A little honey boo? We have a community group together, and there's, it's just grace upon grace in our group when we eat together every Wednesday. Um, but it's this, you know, eating together is this tender and vulnerable moment. I think that's why the symbol has been given to us that not only are we welcomed into the family, but God is welcoming us uh, to sit at his table. And so I want to look back really briefly at that passage from 1 Corinthians um, and just listen to the verbs of how Paul is positioning this understanding of the Lord's table. He says, I received from the Lord what I passed on to you, that Jesus, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he offered it to them in remembrance. You know, in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is my covenant. Do this for every drink in remembrance. And then that final line, 
um, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're proclaiming the Lord's death. And I think it's so important that we recognize there's a difference between being, uh, between taking and receiving. Because when we come to the table with that attitude of our society that things are earned, fought for, purchased, we're believing one of the fundamental lies in our culture, which is that you are a consumer. That's your identity. That's who you are. That you need to gobble up resources and people and, and stuff in order to find out who you really are, to be safe, to be happy, to be lovable, or whatever it might be. And a lot of times we come in with that attitude in our relationship with God. But I had this really powerful vision um, a couple of years ago. It was actually in this room when we were getting ready to come to the table. And, um, you know, my younger years, a lot of them were spent in Michigan. How many of you are from the Midwest? A couple of you. Okay. How many of you remember the debacle that it was to go outside and play in winter? and how long it took. You're putting on the layers and all the stuff, you know, you're getting ready to go. And my little brother was actually like the little brother in the Christmas story where he had the onesie that he ran around like a starfish, you know? And so we, you know, we'd put on all the stuff and the layers upon layers, and then we'd go out and we'd play and we'd make snowmen and all this stuff. And I know all you Floridians are just like dead stare. I don't have an, an analogy for you. Y'all ran around in your underwear, like, you know, because it was so hot. But you know, eventually mom would call us in for dinner and we, we'd come up to the house and then we'd enter into that sacred ritual of just peeling all the, the wet off, you know. And that took like a half hour. You had to stand in the mud room and take off your boots and your coat and your overalls and all, and your, your jeans are probably soaking wet, so you had to take them off. And, you know, half the time we were literally coming to the table just sitting there in our thermal underwear because it was the only thing that was dry. But we couldn't come to the table when we had all that stuff, right? And so the Lord gave me this vision a couple years ago about communion, that that's the invitation that he gives all of us. That the other six days of the week, we're going about in our jobs and our relationships and our tasks and our obligations, and we're wearing all of these coats. We're wearing all of these jackets. We're wearing all of these roles and titles and uh, responsibilities. And some, some of them are good, but a lot of them are not, if we're honest that the identities that people are enforcing upon us that we're putting on as if that's who we really are are kind of weighing us down and they're making us feel destitute in some way. And God gave me this vision, this reminder of, of this childhood memory of like when we come to the table, what we're doing is we're peeling off all the layers of the week of everything that other people have insisted that we are of everything that we've believed that we are, that our values tied in with our work, our, our schedule, our, you know, our ability to perform well in relationship, whatever it might be, then we're, we're peeling all of that back so that we can come to God's table to sit and to dine with him at the only true identity that really matters, that you are the beloved. You can't earn that. You can't behave your way into that. You can't fight for it. Like, you are the beloved of God. And when we come to the table, that's the thing that we're being invited to remember. And so there's a dramatic difference, and I've tried to really change my language in this to, to switch from the sense of we come and we take communion as if we're taking something from God that we're entitled to or we deserve it, to this position of humble receiving, that we come to God like a child receiving something that is freely offered 
Every Friday, I go just down to St. Luke's Cathedral uh, to participate in Holy Communion. It's me, and it's Marge, and she's 81, and she's been at this church her whole life, and our conversations are usually like, hey, how are you this week? And she's like, I lost three canes this week, and you're like, okay, cool, you know? And it's like the two of us, a couple stragglers, like there's oftentimes like homeless people that'll kind of drift in and out, and, and you know, the priest leading it, he's like retired, and he's forgetting half the words, and it's just, it's a beautiful mess. But my favorite part is we're, we're always coming towards the table and, and we come before um, the table of God and we lean, we kneel down on our knees and we hold our hands out to receive. And, and what we do, and maybe this for you germaphobes, this will make you cringe, we actually all drink from the same cup. You know, me and Margie and the homeless guy. Um, and it's this humble, vulnerable, receiving moment. I'm not taking anything. It's got nothing to do with whether I deserve it or I don't deserve it. It's recognizing this is a gift that's freely given, but not only is it given for me, it's also given for 81-year-old Margie. It's also given for the homeless guy. And it becomes this great level playing field within humanity where all the things that we feel like we deserve or don't deserve or what makes us better or worse than other people, all of it melts away at the table. And that's where we come to be transformed. In this passage and in in the Gospels when Jesus says, do this in remembrance for me, like I said, it's not about us saying, oh yeah, this thing happened like 2,000 years ago and wasn't that cool. The word in Greek is anamnesis and it actually means to bring the past into the present so it can continue to transform us. So when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, he's not saying, remember this thing that I did once upon a time. He's saying, take that thing that happened once upon a time and bring it into the present moment and see what I'm going to do now. See how I'm going to transform you now. See how I'm going to shift your perspective on who you are or who that person is next to you now. And so remembrance is a vibrant, active thing that we participate in right now as it continues to change us. And so we gather around the table to immerse ourselves in God's story again, to let go of the stories that we've been told that make us less than human, to let go of the stories that we tell ourselves about thinking that we're deserving or not deserving. And every time we come to the table, we're reenacting the story of God's grace. We're participating in it. We're preparing ourselves to be opened up to receive anew. I think this is the power of what happens when we participate in sacred acts, when we do more than just talk about it, when we do more than just describe God, but we actually come with this expectation that we're going to meet him and be changed. The sacraments reveal that we are the gifts of God offered for the redemption of the whole world. You are the gift that God has blessed the world with. You are the symbol of God's redemption in the world. Wherever you go, whoever you engage with, they are blessed to be in your presence because your presence speaks volumes about the heart of God, about his healing, about hope, about grace. And we are living symbols. This is what it means, incarnation, that we are the enfleshment of the transforming work of God, that we become like the bread broken open in order to feed the world. We become the blood that is shed 
in order to invite people back to God. We become the water that nourishes, that gives life. Your life is a symbol that God is for all of us and that he turns curses into blessings. So I wanna invite you to stand. I'm gonna stop yakking about it. We're gonna actually do it. But we're gonna participate um, in some ancient liturgical prayers that'll be on the screen. I'm going to be the leader and I'm gonna invite you to respond. And like I've said before, don't do this monotonously. You know, just because we're not singing it doesn't mean it's not meaningful. Like, speak these things out. This is us learning how to pray. This is the, the ancient tradition giving us the words that shapes our brains, that forms our hearts, so we know what to expect when we come to God. And so I want you to pray out of that place. Let's, let's begin. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And so, Father, we bring you these gifts. Sanctify them by your Holy Spirit to be for your people the body and blood of Jesus Christ our Lord. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread, said the blessing, broke the bread, and gave it to his friends and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this for remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup of wine, gave thanks, and said, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this for the remembrance of me. Father, we now celebrate the memorial of your Son. By means of this holy bread and cup, we show forth the sacrifice of his death and proclaim his resurrection until he comes again. By him and with him and in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. And all God's people said together, Amen. I want to invite those uh, who I asked to serve, and you can come forward uh, to receive like a child, like a vulnerable child. There's a gluten-free option over here uh, to your right. But as you're coming, just prepare yourself. It's all a gift. It's all grace. Let go of the need to perform. Let go of the need to fight. Let go of the need to run away. Just come as you are and allow God to remind you of his story of grace. Let's come to the table. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.